Good afternoon and welcome to Building Win-Win Vendor Relationships, a health system CIO Media Inc. production. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box and we'll take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time, first we're going to go 35-40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Chuck Christian, VP of Technology and CTO with Franciscan Health, Brad Reimers, CIO at Sanford Health, and Donna Roach, CIO at the University of Utah Health, and then we will have our audience Q&A. So let's jump right in. Um, Donna, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the, as Anthony mentioned, I'm the Chief Information Officer for the University of Utah Health which encompasses our five hospitals, but we are also um, in, we're located in Salt Lake City. We have 11 community health centers, 23 different regional partners, and we are the only academic medical center in a five-state Mountain West region. So we cover off on a lot of quaternary services throughout not just Utah, but um, the surrounding states. And if you think about um, the Wasatch Mountain Front, we are nestled right up against it. We actually built right into the mountain. Um, we've got, we have about 2.1 million visits, patient visits. We've experienced um, pretty tremendous growth, um, but have been going through some things just like everybody else. Um, and we are kind of a closed shop in terms of all of our physicians, our academic physicians and uh are um, uh, employed by the medical center. Very good. Thank you, Donna. Chuck? Hey, good afternoon. Uh, Chuck Christian, uh, the vice president of technology and CTO. My joke is if it's broke, it's probably my fault. Uh, Franciscan is a 12 hospital system uh, that has hospitals located in Indiana, uh, Illinois, and we have about 350 to 400 physician practices, depending upon how you want to count them, imaging centers, urgent cares, uh, and a whole host of uh, other things. We have about 1,000 to 1,200 uh, physicians in our physician uh, practice group that covers uh, all the gambit. Uh, we have a, a wide range of uh, services and, and facilities, so happy to be here. Very good, Chuck. Thank you. Brad? Yeah, good morning. Uh, Brad Reimer, Chief Information Officer for Sanford Health. We are the largest rural health system um, in the nation and really focused in the upper Midwest. So primarily North Dakota, South Dakota, and the, the western half of Minnesota. Um, we cover a, um, a geography that's about the size of Texas, um, but with about a million and a half patients um, we also have an integrated health, uh, health plan with about 220,000 members, and then also have uh, 200 long-term care facilities um, that are also uh, kind of spread a little bit further um, than just that, that main footprint. We have four main medical centers, um, but have a total of 45 hospitals. So a lot of critical access hospitals, rural hospitals that um, are smaller, but all on our uh, consistent platform and system. Um, yeah, so I have all of the information, uh, information technology, security, data, those things that all roll up into me. Um, so I appreciate having part of the program today. 
Very good, Brad. Looking forward to our chat. All right. Um, let Donna, let's start with you. Do you divide your, uh, I'm just trying to get a framework of how you think about your vendors. Do you divide them into different buckets that receive different levels of attention or handle differently, strategic, tactical, however you sort of term them? Yeah. So the one thing to keep in mind, we are a state-based um, organization. So we're owned by the state of Utah. So a lot of our vendor relationships and the vendors we have are governed under state procurement laws. We do bucket differently. Um, so we have like five or six main vendors. And um, I would say six, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood, about 70% of our budget is spread across these six main vendors. And then um, the, you could almost say the same thing about capital expenditures, maybe just a little bit higher than that. Uh, we, When we think about uh, portfolio rationalization, we focus on using and optimizing those vendors. So we develop really strong relationships with them. We turn to them. We look at, well, what could we be in a development development um, partnership with, not just buying something off the shelf. And we try to optimize as much with those big vendors that we are already um, uh, in, that are already here in place with us here at Utah. Very good, Chuck. Well, I'm not sure buckets is uh, or the categories. Uh, I'm I'm not looking for vendors. I have enough of those. I like partners, and so that's how I bucket mine between vendors and partners. Uh, and you know the, the the joke I had a long time ago was that you know when somebody's wanting to sell me something and and we were getting in the contract phase, I'd say you know make me look like a genius uh, and you can become my partner. But I'm like Donna, you know we like to it to. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to decrease the total number, you know, a health system. I'm, we're, not, we're not as big as Brad, but, uh, you know, when we have, uh, you know, different facilities, they have uh, different uh, partners they like to do regionally. And I'm trying to do it from a corporate standpoint. And so our, our big systems are typically, uh, you know, in those, in that partner category. And so I, I get, have the pleasure of owning those very large uh, relationships and several uh, other members of my team own some of the other relationships, but uh, you know it, it's it's not really how we handle it. Is that it's how the relationship uh, needs to go because I understand that you know uh, the vendors are are our partners are there. They have to make money in order to stay in business, and I have to try to save money for us to stay in business. Uh, you know we are a capital C, a, a Catholic organization. And so we work very hard to make sure that we're managing uh, every dollar uh, appropriately. So that's yeah, that's the speech that you know, most of our people that sell us stuff or provide service uh, for us get to hear on a regular basis. All right, very good. Lots to dig into there. We'll get to down the. Right. Uh, go ahead, go ahead, buddy. No, oh, I'm done. Oh, you said all right. Okay, no, <laughs> sorry. No, I'm go done. Ahead. All right, Brad, your thoughts. Yeah, I would just build on on what both uh, Donna and Chuck said. So the vendor partner buckets, that's definitely um, the way that we look at things as well. One of the things that we've kind of added to our definition of partner is, are they really invested into healthcare? So they, they maybe have an industry vertical that sells to healthcare, but are they really trying to understand what our current problems are, what our opportunities are? 
and helping us solve those problems, not necessarily just helping, you know, drive more product in because they can speak to it a little bit more. Um, so from that vendor partnership um, perspective, we definitely, um, definitely kind of bucket things and, and put some pressure on, uh, you know, them to step up and to really make sure that they understand uh, the nuances of healthcare. And then we also have tied our our vendor management strategy in with like our application tiering strategies. So critical high, medium, low, or tier one, two, three. And we do have different requirements that uh, that we put on those different tiers based on um, maybe it's it's the dollar amount of the contract or the risk of the particular vendor or the criticality for patient care. Um, and then we do treat them differently. And those that are kind of those cornerstone solutions and systems, we make sure that those do have that partnership relationship. And there's as much on our side um, of that equation as there is on the on the vendor side as well. Um, but those are the ones we're really leaning into to make sure, um, like Donna said, consolidating more products towards them as we're doing rationalization. But those also should be the ones that are really helping us um, chart the path forward uh, on some of the new things that are coming up uh, within healthcare as well. So a, a big push, and I've heard this, you know, across the board from security folks as well as CIOs, um, application rationalization is a huge push in health systems um, for many, many reasons. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about that because I'm sure you're still getting requests in all the time for the new tool, the new toy. They were come bubbling up from the users. We want this. This is great. Somehow they saw it at a conference or the salespeople got to them and we want this. We want this. It's so great. It's so unique. There is that sort of working that tension between your interests in um, reducing it down to a certain number of vendors and trying to find within their suite, if you have something that works versus the desire of the user to to get the new toy. Maybe it is a unique toy. Maybe it is a unique, and I don't mean to be dismissive with the word toy. Maybe it is unique and and it's something that needs to be brought on outside of our core vendors because it's so unique. So let me get your thoughts there. Brad, let's start with you. Yeah, so I think I've just seen a transition, I'll say over the last three to five years, for sure um, since the pandemic, there's been a deeper conversation with our clinical and business partners on what the true value is for um for these vendor relationships and what's happened with ransomware. I mean, there, there is this drive to um, push out complexity, to reduce your overall footprint and exposure um, that you have. But there's also, you just think about the investment that's going into the innovation of healthcare right now. Um, a lot of those start out with fairly small slice. Um, you know, they don't have a full platform that they're deploying. So We've got to be smart on making sure that we can take advantage of those innovations. We look to see if that innovation is already covered by one of the one of our existing vendors. And if it is, then we do have a, a pretty frank conversation with those clinical and operational leaders of what's the differentiator that makes us think that this is one that we should deviate from that. And if there's a strong value play there, we will, as a, a technology organization, digital organization, try to accommodate that the best way we can. Um, but also trying to keep a balance of not just adding every little um, flashy bell and whistle that that comes along. Yeah, so you're looking for a high bar to go outside the core vendors, a fairly high yes. bar, I would imagine. Donna, yep. what are your thoughts? Yeah, and just to add on a little bit, so I think where the innovation and kind of building on what Brad's saying, innovation is taking place more in 
some of the our current vendors or partners that are applying more AI automation, predictive analytics, and working with us in that space to understand that a little bit better and really improve upon, do they have an engine in the background that's constantly learning? Um, that, that to us, that's exciting. And, you know, kind of the, the flip side of this, being in a university setting, we have a lot of um, innovation sites already stood up. So I partner with them quite a bit to if there's a newer technology that comes out that is not in our current portfolio and we want to evaluate it, we push it through kind of an innovation roadmap rather than bring it into our, our, our environment here at the U. And we're working on this structure. I don't have it totally down yet, but it's been really exciting about standing up um, a digital health accelerator in our current innovation space to see how we can learn more of these um, groups. And sometimes they're our current partners and sometimes they are brand new um, groups coming in that have a great um, tool or great uh, predictive analytics model that we want to partner and be actively part of in order to see what it would do for us here at the U. Really interesting point, Donna. Chuck, um, your thoughts? Well, I mean, you know, Anthony, I've been in healthcare for a long time. This reminds me a lot, you know, about, uh, you know, medical device manufacturers uh, and the, uh, the, the digital technology salespeople. Have, I think they transitioned over from the medical device or other uh, other components because they they've now learned they go to the doctors uh, and sell them at conference and that kind of stuff and they come back and say hey I want this new bright shiny thing and you know what we've been able to do is we have a process that's put in place uh, that we go through and vet those type of things and look you know we're an epic shop and so we're kind of uh, you know epic first uh, because there's a cost of integrating all of these new uh, toys. I mean, I grew up in IT where we were, you know, being told by the consultants at that point in time is you go and find the best functionality with the best features you possibly can. And what we in IT uh, came to realize, we wound up being the integrators. And guess what? Uh, that's where HL7 and a whole bunch of other stuff. And so you wound up having not things that were integrated, but you had things that were interfaced and they didn't work that great. Uh, and then you have data everywhere. And in, in this day and time with the, the things that came out of 21st Century Cures, and uh, which is now the, the piece of it that we're all dealing with is called data sharing rather than data blocking, is you have to make that data available. Uh, and so having it in a, in a larger database or a larger construct is a lot easier. But uh, I'm like Donna. I, I've stood up a technical uh, innovation center so we can vet out the technology to make sure uh, that it fits within an architecture. All the uh, the enterprise architects report it to me, uh, and we build uh, the architecture. We have a set of architectural principles that we bump all this stuff up against to make sure that from a security standpoint and from a hardware standpoint, it will fit within our environment without a lot of shaving off the, you know, and rounding off the corners to you know, take that peg and put it in a round hole. So that that helps a little bit, but we still get, 
and we have five different regions. Uh, and at one point in time, we had seven different innovation projects going on, but looking at virtual, uh, all different constructs. Uh, and it was it was falling to my my field technical services staff to staff those innovations, and I basically I said we you know we can't do this we need to come up with a more corporate approach and so that's where the vendors and I use that the V word rather than the the P word for partners because they were selling into those. Uh, different regions based upon relationships and stuff. And so that's when you, you know, we have to, from a corporate standpoint, have to step in and have a conversation with them about, hey, that's great. Let's have a, a more broad conversation from an enterprise level rather than, you know, taking a niche uh, approach with it. So it's, it's hard. Uh, and, but you, you have to truly get your process and your policy. And the fact is you have to be looked at as a partner. Uh, for the leadership of your local uh, hospitals or the local regions to know that if they bring something to you, you're going to take a serious look at it uh, mm. and and be honest about will it fit, will it not fit. But if it this doesn't fit, here's an alternative that we already have implemented at these other regions that we think that will fit very well. Yeah. And can I add something? Because you brought up a really good point. It's that architectural review that we, I think our industry, you know, myself, Chuck and Brad and any other CIO is looking at to say, it's got to fit our architectural design and direction. And we do have ones that come to us and, and, you know, it's a physician group and they need it. And it's almost like, you know, we tell IT, hold your nose because this is a really bad architectural uh, setup. And how do you work through it? I, I mean, I Chuck is spot on. You know, I, I think in the past we didn't elevate that as much. And now we have to because for this a, a digital strategy to work, we have to have that architectural design down and really know, kind of be able to pull apart all those layers of the onion of, of that vendor to say, okay, your, your design, your architectural design is not going to work. And it doesn't matter. It's not going to work in my shop. It's not going to work in Chuck's or Brad's. It's just, you got to, you know, improve upon that. So. Well, I think the, too, Donna, you know, I sit on probably a half a dozen advisory boards and, you know, the, the, uh, being able to take constructive criticism about how their product fits or doesn't fit. I mean, right. and I, I, when everybody, anybody asks me to participate uh, in those executive advisory boards, I, I'd remind them that you, you ask for my opinion and I will give it to you whether mm -hmm. you like it or not. And I think mm -hmm. it's that, uh, you know, just, you know, raw honesty, uh, you know, giving, uh, you know, and having good historical uh, backdrop for that is very, very important. Right. So I want to add one more, one more thing to that. And, you know, we kind of talked about how do you bring in new vendors? How do you make sure that that's a fit? We have as much or more work going back and looking at our legacy systems, the systems that are in place today, that do they still fit with that digital ecosystem or not? And when you start getting into conversations with vendors like, can you support the next version of Windows? That's that's a warning sign. And you should really be having different conversations. And we've even started to put some of that upstream in uh, contract renewals and those types of things that are uh, pushing and holding the vendors accountable for making sure that they're continuing to invest into that product that 
we need to continue to use. So that architectural fit is um, goes in both directions for new, for sure. But there's a lot of that that's in our infrastructures um, legacy wise that should fit better for where we're going digitally. Yep. And, and well, Brad, go ahead, Chuck. Sorry. So it's nothing, nothing more appropriate than having a, uh, one of your partners do an upgrade that absolutely uh, breaks something way on down the line. So that's uh, a very good point. And that's where the relationship and the, the, the bi-directional conversation uh, is so important. So, Brad, what you're talking about doing is essentially you're trying to get ahead of technical debt and, and get ahead of it so it doesn't happen. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's technical debt. It's just keeping up on security um, sometimes, frankly. It's, it's not even a debt. It's just recognizing that there needs to be continual investment into these tool sets to be able to keep up with the, the world that's changing around us. Um, the technical debt conversation seems to maybe be a little bit more on the data integration side. Do they have a, a proper API structure that you can orchestrate a patient experience across and those types of things? Because it kind of comes back to, is that vendor or is that partner really in it for where healthcare is going, which is we need to have the patient center in that patient journey. They need to be considered. And if that if that vendor doesn't have a way of receiving patient input um, outside of their product cycle, um, they're gonna they're not gonna lead you in the right direction in terms of what we want to be able to orchestrate for an experience for those patients down the road. All right, excellent, very good, um, Chuck. We're gonna start out with you on this one. How critical is it to get? And I assume it's very critical to get the contracting and SLAs right at the start of a vendor relationship. Is it possible to tell in the contracting phase? What kind of relationship you're getting into, and you ever have you ever been involved in a situation where you plan to go forward with a vendor, but their behavior during the contracting process killed the deal? Wow, that's a lot to unpack, uh, Anthony. So uh, I'll uh, I'll say most of the time when you're in the contracting phase, you're dealing with you know the development people, uh, you're dealing with sales, and you're dealing with your your attorneys and their attorneys. At Franciscan, we have a very structured, uh, and you can't see me air quote, structured uh, contracting approach. Everything goes through a contract specialist. Everything goes for attorney review. So, um, you know, and the thing about it is it's very difficult, uh, even though that, you know, when you're going through a sell cycle, because typically what happens is after the, the ink dries or actually before the ink dries on the contract, you're handed off to an implementation group. And then after that, a, a services group, which is an entirely different group that you probably don't get to meet uh, unless you, you request that during the contracting phase, because you just assume that everything works okay. So, uh, you know, to answer your last question, no, I've never run into a situation where we are moving forward with a vendor and the behavior was so, uh, you know, strained that we stopped the process. Uh, we have stopped the process because of a disagreement in uh, where risk is going to be either shared or moved because, uh, you know, I found through the, you know, very intense contracting that we do some, some very large uh, agreements that, uh, it's a it's a tug of war between the attorneys. Who's going to win the 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 prize by moving the most risk to the other person? 
Uh, and so, and so we finally, uh, we seem to come to an agreement. Sometimes we accept the risk. Sometimes we get uh, the vendor to accept the risk, but we have some pretty stringent requirements. And, and about the first question about SLAs, it, and I'll give you a good six sigma answer. It kind of depends. What's the contract for? Uh, if you're, you know, contracting for, and I'll use some of the stuff we've done, just did, you know, we're, redid all of our contracts for all of our wide area network. Well, uptime is very, very important, particularly in small practices. Uh, and the fact is that sometimes the people that you're contracting with, they're subcontracting out to the last mile. So having those SLAs that they're accountable for are extremely important. But, you know, if you're you know, looking for, you know, Epic hosting, you know, we're moving our Epic instance to Azure right now. It's very important to, you know, have those performance standards. And, you know, we're using a managed services partner that, uh, that's going to manage those environments for us. And so, you know, those are really important so you can use hard data rather than gut reaction about how the, your partners, uh, are performing. So, uh, the uh, the second question is about possible tell. You know, and sometimes it's, it's possible to tell. It depends upon the quality of the people, uh, and the fact is you can tell pretty quick when somebody's trying to hit their commission and their, and their numbers for the for the quarter uh, versus they're they're as Brad said, you know, they're really truly dedicated to the healthcare. They're in it because of that and. Uh, we we have a tendency to look for those uh, partnerships as well, rather than. But unfortunately, some of the things are commodities. We buy a lot of stuff through CDW because it's a commodity, uh, and we have we're part of the Health Trust Purchasing Group. Uh, we're part, one of the owners of that, and so a lot of the stuff goes through that. And so, uh, when it's a commodity level, there's not many SLAs that, that go along with that. Brad, let me go to you next. You could either focus on the question uh, on this slide, but another interesting dynamic that I thought of maybe more interesting is sometimes if you have uh, Chuck talk about different groups, right? Sometimes you're interacting with the sales group when you decide to move forward with something. And when you're ultimately, when that's done, they almost get to wash their hands of it. And you're turned over to the people that are actually going to do the work. And occasionally you can hear, you know, well, they agree. You agreed to what? No, we don't do that. Or no, we don't do it that way. And you say, well, wait a minute. Uh, John, I just talked, you know, John, who I was dealing with, this is what he told me. I don't know if that kind of thing ever comes up, but wherever you want to take that. Yeah. So my role prior to coming to Sanford was on the vendor side of things within healthcare. And one of the things that we did um, after you got to a certain point of qualification in the sales cycle, we started to bring in who's going to be the support leader, who's going to be the account manager, who are you going to interact with from a product development standpoint and establish those relationships before the sale actually closed. So I've kind of held on to that and starting to require that in conversations I'm having with new vendors, even retrofitting that back into some existing ones to where you do have, you have to have a relationship with your account manager that is, they're, they're going to have some accountability for sales, but having those other relationships that kind of rounds out the full, especially for those partners, rounds out that full perspective of service, support, maintainability, new product development, um, and those types of things is really important. So I do think that having multiple touch points um, and having a regular cadence in the way that you're interacting with them is really important. One of the other things that we're 
um, just starting to kind of uh, enforce a little bit more within uh, the Sanford IT groups is you may have like a regular quarterly cadence for a business review or whatever with a particular vendor. It's like, who's driving that? If you leave it up to the vendor to bring to the table what they think is important, that's maybe not who should be in the driver's seat. So we're trying to pull that relationship accountability um, a little bit more back in house. They obviously have to participate in it, but it needs to be driving our agenda. And then you can drive in there, the SLA conversations and those types of things. And then we can say, hey, in this next conversation, we really want to see so-and-so from your organization in this conversation rather than it just being the account management folks. So um, I do think that we need to take a little bit more accountability on our side to make sure that we are managing that relationship um, and those individual relationships within the organization um, to the best of its value opportunity. Great point, Brett. Donna? Yeah, the thing I'll add is from an IT perspective, these are all very important and we work and develop just like what Chuck said in terms of the SLAs and the um, the vendor relationship. What happens though is because again, we're academic and we may have a department chair um, bring a contract through and the contract now is coming through our, our contract management system and we're looking at it and going, and we have to do a security review and an architecture review. And we're looking at it going, well, where are the SLAs? And the, you know, the person or group that is asking for is like, well, why do we need an SLA? So it's, it's that whole concept of training others on why that's so important, what the advantage it brings us, kind of IT getting more out in front Mm -hmm. of some of these things. Now, it's really at that point difficult to say no. So it's us then kind of coming back around, working with that vendor and saying, you know, here's what we expect of you. Um, we have um, seen some contracts not go through because they couldn't meet the security requirements that we said we needed. And so that makes sometimes very unhappy chairmen of departments and positions that, you know, and that's when I have to partner with my. CMO or my CEO to say, we got to go back to this group and say, you know, you can't have this because this is where this product is going, but let's look at this, another option or something. So um, this is where kind of these one-offs come in and they impact us here in the IT space as we try to um, uh, put out the best kind of, you know, structure and service mentality, but our, our, sometimes our partners out in healthcare don't understand this concept. The other thing too, is in realize so much is shifted from a capital expenditure where we might be more involved from an operational expenditure. So operationally, they have that money in their budget to do it, but they still have to have it signed off by us. And that's when we kind of were like, we get involved way too late in the game. And so it's catching up and helping people to see how important these things can be. Um, we definitely learned our lesson through the, I think the UKG Kronos of having good SLAs and what that took to kind of get out of um, that, that situation. And we had SLAs in place. And so we could go back and say, 
this is what you have to achieve. And we use that as an example to say, this is why. <laughs> That's really, really interesting, Donna. Um, well, the other thing too, Andy, go ahead, Chuck. Let, let me just jump in, is that um, I think that, you know, when we bring forth and we recommend that, you know, if we're given a choice as part of the process, uh, then our own accountability and our own credibility is is called into question. So uh, as far as what, what vendors or what partners we choose in the organization. So uh, I think all of us, you know, and I know I, I do it consciously and unconsciously is, you know, I will weigh the possibilities and probabilities of this vendor is going to be successful in the organization, is going to meet the uh, the standards, uh, particularly if, if we're bringing it forward. Or, you know, like Donna said, you know, we can't be the department of no. Sometimes we're the department of not now. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, rather than saying no, is you, you have to, you know, as Donna said, you have to give them alternatives is not this one, but this widget, uh, because, you know, if we can find an integrated product, uh, you know, a module of Epic that will, that has 85 to 90% of the functionality of this bright, shiny object over here, it is far easier uh, on the operations of the organization uh, to incorporate that, the, the Epic module, than it is to go out and try to bolt on something else. And so, and the fact is sometimes, uh, you know, that the Epic product is just not up to speed yet. We're just now uh, as an organization, because we have a reference lab, a, a very large reference lab throughout our enterprise as well. We're just now moving from soft to beaker. Uh, we're bringing them up uh, next month is because we waited until the functionality got to the point where those department leaders agreed that the the Epic module had the same level of functionality and it was comparable. So those are really interesting and difficult conversations to have internally. So, you know, we we have to wind up being uh, that uh, we have customers and we wind up, you know, playing the role of vendor, if you will. And I like to play the role of partner to help move those technologies and things out to people because, you know, I, I want to make sure that technology is invisible. They this, These are tools people use to do their jobs. I don't want it to be like the chainsaw that nobody knows how to crank, but they still need to cut wood. Mm. Lots of good stuff there. Lots of good stuff there. I want to I talk a little bit about <clears throat> M&A. Um, Brad, let's start with you. Because this is such a, a big part of dealing with vendors. Vendors are acquiring and being acquired all the time. And I don't know if, if you get a, ahead of that in, in a sense with any contracting within the contract, if there's any stipulations about if you're required or if you require someone uh, that certain things have to happen or can't happen. Um, so how do you deal with the, the acquisition of a, a key vendor or, you know, maybe not one of these top six we're talked about, but an important vendor that is acquired um, or an important vendor that makes an acquisition? Because we all know that that can really change focus and sort of eat up a lot of their energies and time, maybe take their eye off the ball, so to speak. So Brad, your thoughts. Yeah. So I don't know that there's anything contractual wise that we've implemented. Um, you know, that's not pretty much, I, I would say standard fare for, for any contract. It really, in my mind comes down to, are you having the right conversations with those vendors to find out what is their end game? So understanding if they're a venture capital funded, 
organization, you know that they're going to be targeting a sale and in what period of time and what are their aspirations in terms of the type of organization that they might be wanting to, um, to sell to? Or are they in a growth mode and they're constantly going to be um, acquiring new products? Talk to them about, are you, are you operating more as a holding company? Or are you really thinking about integrating those products into a common product suite? Um, because that'll give you some indication of where they're going to be putting um, their effort, their focus, and those types of things. And like Chuck said, if you're on some of those advisory boards, you can actually provide some, some good input and insight into them in terms of what's really going to bring the best value for our patients, in addition to things that are going to help you find a win-win with what the company, you know, the vendor's bottom line is. And again, if they're not willing to have that dialogue of how they're going to keep patient center of that conversation, that's going to give you a sense of, of, are they truly a partner or are they a vendor? And if they're a vendor that's just trying to grow and the bottom dollar is what drives all of their conversation um, with you and the activity within their organization, uh, it just it does change the way that we interact with them and what, how we push them and how we think about their long-term, uh, I don't say viability, but what is their long-term place uh, in our overall architecture. Very good. Donna? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you've got assignability clauses, right? So that's one thing that you always want to make yeah. sure are in there. Applies to us just as much as it applies to them. Um, but I think, you know, kind of adding on to what Brad was saying is um, when when you're in these situations and you know, like they're big companies, right? It, it, you know, take some of the big tax vendors and EHR vendors. If you if you don't understand if you're kind of what their roadmap is, um, you're you're kind of missing a really good dialogue you need to have. One of the things we've done like this last year is we made we took like our top four and five vendors and we said, okay, I'm going to share with you um, our digital roadmap, but I'm I'm also want you to share with me and my team your roadmap. And, and we made the effort. We, we went on site to their headquarters and did this kind of, you know, um, day, day and a half kind of situation. And that really helped open up, like what Brad's saying is that dialogue of saying, well, here's where we're going. How does your roadmap apply to what we're doing and vice versa? And really saw some very um, interesting uh information that you know you can't you just can't get from a, a, a phone call or um you know even a a session at a um you know whether it be at chime or hymns or something it's having that one-on-one the willingness to share what we're doing but also them share what they're doing and and bringing the right people to the table because like you said it's not just sales. It's okay. If I'm really after a certain architectural structure, I want to talk to who's in charge of your architectural design. That's sometimes a fairly high up person who can open that dialogue up and show you that a little bit more. And that helps um, in this kind of, then you start to see, well, hey, yeah, we just acquired them, but it's going to be three years before we make them part of our platform. Or we acquired them and we're just going to bring over their customers to our platform. You start having these discussions and it's very telling 
Um, and, you know, I just, I would encourage people, you know, take your top two and, and put forth that effort to say, hey, we'll come on site. I'll bring my CTO, my CISO, my whoever you feel is necessary. And you bring your people to the table and we'll have a really good um, conversation about the direction. Very good, Chuck. Well, I think that, you know, if you've been in the business long enough, you're going to run across situations where, you know, one of your key partners gets acquired uh, or is acquiring. Uh, and doesn't make any difference which which uh, direction it goes. There's always disruption because it makes key people in the organization nervous and they have a tendency to leave. Uh, and, you know, the good ones will always go first. And so I think this is one of the reasons it's, it's extremely important for, to create those relationships uh, and you as uh, the, the buyer to be a good partner to the vendors. And now you learn one of the secrets uh the reason I sit on the advisory boards is because I get to interact with a whole different level of individuals and I, and, and I, I have to sign NDAs. And so I get an idea of where are they going, where they're taking it, but I also get to influence that because those of us in healthcare, I mean, I'll go back into my old, um, way back in the 80s days when I was working, uh, when we first started automating hospitals and working on very key, uh, 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 the you know lab radiology and that kind of stuff is the people that were developing the software thought they understood exactly how the the bench tech needed to work with their software in order to be successful. Well, no, never worked that way because they design the software and you put it in front of the people that have to use it every day. They, they look at it and go, what were you thinking? This is not how I work. And, you know, you've got too many clicks and I've got to type too much stuff. And so you have to participate uh, in that uh, that process. And, you know, I've, and the other reason that you have to create good relationships is because uh, if if you know the right people, uh, and you and you're a trusted partner, they will let you know about things that are about to come to pass. And it's not things that they're sharing inappropriately. It's just, or, and it's not hearsay, but it's they know that these things are coming, and they want to give you a heads up to let you one be you know kind of steal yourself when you hear about it, but also to prepare uh, for the organization. Uh, and uh, and be prepped for what's coming down the line. I mean, it's like it's almost like you know SBVB Bank. Uh, you hmm. know the the people sold their shares because they knew that uh, the the world was about to happen uh, and fall in them. And all the you know everybody got their bonuses because they knew that the feds were coming to take that bank over. So it's it's uh, creating those relationships, uh, not because you can, so you can be an insider, but because you can learn and get information that will be beneficial for your organization uh, and people don't want to see, uh, see you fail. All right. Very good. We're going to, I got a little poll here. We're going to have a little fun. We're going to, we're going to launch our poll. Uh, in my experience, that would be you, not me. In your experience, when a vendor acquires or is acquired by another organization, it almost always results in a negative outcome. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? So I'm interested in what people have to say. So please vote on that, and then we will um, revisit it. I want to get to uh, my favorite part, my Ask a Co-Panelist section, and hear what our panelists 
would like to know and, and hear from each other. So, Brad, I'm going to start with you. Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, I've got a, I'm going to put you on the spot, Donna. So Donna was my <laughs> group leader for going through the CHIME CHCIO uh, program. So I've got a lot of respect for her. But what I'd be curious on is you think about how you've been kind of training that next generation of, of tech leaders. What are the things that you're talking to them about today around vendor management that you maybe weren't pre-pandemic or pre-ransomware being such a hot topic? Yeah, so I think a couple of different things, right? Um, one, and we've talked, we this has been, I think, a consistent theme. You have to have relationships with um, the, the the vendors, the groups that are out there. And that's not that's not just you know being able to go out for a drink or anything like that, but it's knowing that person and and developing it and having a respectful um, vendor relationship. It's building it. And sometimes we, you know, in IT, we're such introverts, right? You have to be very purposeful about developing kind of that ongoing um, relationship with people. And also, how do you then spill that over into your own organization? You know, the why behind why you're doing it. So people understand and start to see, it's like you're almost creating a relationship map, right? And, and, and you want to share that. So that, you know, a lot of my up and coming leaders, sometimes people have only been here and have, haven't been anywhere else. So they don't know what else is out there and they have to stretch themselves and they have to, whether it's being part of something at hymns or chime or something, you've got to be very purposeful and start to really develop um, that skill set and what you're doing. The other thing I, and I, you know, I, I used to kind of laugh at this, but it's all, it's like spending a little bit more time in your, uh, the other leader's shoes, right? You know, you can call it somewhat job sharing, but if I'm an application director and I have, you know, ideas of wanting to become a CIO and you kind of came up that application route, spending some time on that technical side and understanding what the CTO goes through it, it, that's going to go a long ways for what, um, you know, your own career development, spending some time with the CISO or what goes on in the security, rather, you know, and again, that's relationship building, but it's also really being serious about, I want to understand what are some of the pain points that you're dealing with and kind of ongoing development of that. So, yeah. Chuck, and you, were, you were a great contributor. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, anything you want to add on to that answer? Well, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm going to pick on Donna again. Uh, is uh, well, that's okay. Uh, is that since she works for the state uh, and she's a state agency, the, the the parameters that she has to work within are much, much different than those of us in the, what I call the private sector. Yeah. Uh, even though that we're the Catholic health system, and and you know our ethics uh, and uh, is are held to the highest level of standards because I have, we have a bunch of priests that look over our shoulders and and it's organizations owned by the sisters uh, and I'll never disappoint them uh, to tell you the truth. So Donna, from a uh, you're working at an agency that is managed by state purchasing guidelines, 
you've worked in both, you know, state, you know, and you know, public and private. So what's the what's the difference between vendor relationships? Yeah. So you have and, and this seat, I have to be real careful. Like I can't I can't have a vendor buy dinner. Um, I, you know, I I can't they can't cover up my travel or anything like that. I mean, I mean, sometimes it gets a little crazy. It's like I can't even give you a pen. It's like, uh, you know, but you have to be very careful because of the watchfulness of that relationship. But it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't remove the fact that I can still go out to dinner with you, uh, you know, and, but I'm buying dinner, right? And, and, and sometimes you do get some surprises, like you're buying dinner and you're like, yeah, I have to do that. And, and organizations start to understand that a little bit differently. Um, it's it, interesting though, at first, you know, it, it's kind of this love-hate relationship. Um, the state can really help and accelerate um, the the vendor um, contract process for us, but they can also be sometimes a barrier to some things. And so it's working through those, having a really good understanding with my supply chain people um, and what they're working through. Kind of our we're under Vizient, so we have our GPO under Vizient. So how do you leverage that a little bit more? Um, it. it that's that's kind of the uniqueness of the state piece of it. But I'm like you, I've worked for Catholic, I worked for Ascension for seven years. And there were a lot of times, you know, Ascension said, no, you can't, you can't accept that or you can't right. do that. It's like, okay. But you still can put forth an effort of of have building a relationship and understanding and meeting with folks. I mean, that's the beauty of time and hymns and some of the groups that we belong to is that that gives us that kind of relationship building kind of opportunity. Very good. Donna, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah. So one of the things that I have been become acutely aware of, and I brought this up, I think earlier is in a lot of the contracts, I'm starting to see um, AI um, built into the contracts, predictive analytics, and kind of the, using our data, right, to help their learning model or their AI model. And I'm, I'm kind of brought this back to my legal folks just to say, hey, what do you think? And should we be a little bit more uh, proactive? Um, they're kind of scrambling a little bit, too, because they're seeing the same thing I'm seeing. Um, I, I think there's, right, there's not a whole lot out there. That helps, um, you know, the for, from the University of Utah, we're very protective of our data. Um, we have an EDW that has 28 years worth of data in it. So that data becomes very powerful information in how we use research. So I'm wondering what you guys are seeing. Uh, have you any tips, anything that you've kind of been um, you know, either Chuck or Brad, you know, alarmed you, or maybe you just said, hey, we've got to dig into this a little bit because from a legal side, there's not much out there just yet. So, Brad, you want to jump in first? Yeah. So, I don't know that I've seen a lot kind of come through the contractual side yet. 
what I can tell you, and that, that's, that's another whole webinar, right? Is how are you thinking about AI governance, right? I mean, it's 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 a it's a real um, it's a real topic, and we've even seen it come in where not necessarily that a vendor is wanting to use our data, but they model it off of something that doesn't correlate to our data. So we've actually went back to them and say, okay, we want you to rerun this model based off of Sanford's data so we can make sure that it's representative of the patient portfolio and population that we have in front of us. Um, so I do think that there's going to be some new things that need to come out from a perspective and just an internal AI governance that helps us make sure that not only contractually do we have um, you know, the right things in place, but how do we hold them to the change control process. If you're making an update to the model, what is your notification to us and what ability do we have to test it? Um, those are the types of things that we um, are, I wouldn't say we're there yet, but we're starting to have conversations with our legal team around how do we want to start layering some of that into the contracts because the quality of those items and the potential impact on on patient outcomes and, and uh, care quality could be impacted if we don't have the right boundaries in place with those with those. Um, with those vendors. And I, I don't want to pin it on any particular vendor, but the, the industry is still pretty immature around this. So a lot of the things that should be safeguards when we think about how that's impacting patient care, maybe haven't necessarily been completely thought through yet, just because we haven't seen the volume going through um, AI change and those types of things that um, I, I think it's going to be morphing quite a bit over the next few years. Chuck, anything you want to add there? Well, no, other than the fact is I think we have to be careful. I mean, if you if you go back several years, you know, 10 or more years, a lot of the contracts, particularly the EMR vendors and stuff, uh, th that was just kind of written into the agreements. They would have access on an aggregate uh, basis to use their your, use your data. Uh, I mean, if you look at Epic and Center both, they've been in the business of they ask you first if you want to participate in data, you know, de-identified data sharing. But... Uh, as good as some of the models are, you know, I'd, I'd hesitate to say, I think it's far more difficult to de-identify data today than it was 10, 15 years ago because mm -hmm. of just the, uh, the, the, the enormity of the databases that are out there already. And you know, I had the pleasure of working with Experian, uh, and some of the other, uh, when I was in Georgia, uh, and I was just shocked at how easy they can piece data together. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, make, you know, they could tell, you know, who lives in your household by using, you know, 12 or 15 different databases. And so I think we just have to be careful. But I agree with Brad is that just because they have a model doesn't mean that it's going to work uh, in your, uh, it's, it's kind of like research. Uh, it depends upon who the cohort is that you're looking at. If you're looking at a cohort that is, is just rural America, that's not going to fit really well with an urban our suburban population uh, because, you know, the lifestyles, the pollutants and all of the things are different. So I think we have to be careful, but I also uh, would agree that the larger the cohorts of data that we can use, the better that these tools are going to become. And the worst thing you want to do is uh, run it across uh, a, a, a data set that's going to force a wrong outcome, and particularly if you're going to use it for 
uh, diagnostic purposes or for an augmentation of, of some process like reading radiographs or mammographies or, or something else or something else in imaging or even pathology slides. All right, very good. Well, we only have we pretty much got to wrap up, but I want to share the poll results. Um, Chuck, let me ask you for your prediction. More people will agree or disagree on the poll? I think that they will agree that it's going to have a negative outcome. All right, Brad, agree or disagree? I voted actually as disagree. Um, I don't know if that's going to be the popular vote, uh, right. but I haven't always seen it be negative. Donna? I'm with Chuck. I think people will say agree. Well, here's the results. Oh, wow. 50 50. So you had two people vote, one for, one against. No, <laughs> no, thank you. I actually had 18, my friend. 18. Okay. So. I think that's a quorum or whatever you want to call it. Anyway, I was surprised at that. I, uh, based on phrasing the question, I thought it was going to be very uh, high in the agree that it was negative, but I was wrong, which is not the first time. And I don't suspect it will be the last. That's um, what your wife told me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. You will get an email when the on-demand recording of this wonderful event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox. From our team, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Chuck Christian, Brad Reimer, and Donna Roach for participating. I want to thank you for attending. And with Great. that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank Great. you. Thanks very much. Thanks. Bye-bye.